All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Welcome back to the Equity Matters podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And for some reason, I thought that when I came back from Atlanta, things would slow down a bit in my life. And let me tell you, that is absolutely false. Um, things have not slowed down. Things have actually ramped up in ways that feel unrealistic. But more on that after today's episode. The first thing I want to start things off with today is really a disclaimer. Naming podcast episodes is not an easy feat. I, I find myself balancing between trying to be creative, trying to be catchy, but also trying to be direct. And I went back and forth on today's episode and I landed with the secret epidemic and that is not to say that it is a secret in any way or that it's been silent. And what I don't want to do is to discount the work of HIV AIDS advocates, researchers and practitioners. What I mean by secret here is subpopulations and communities within the broader LGBTQ group that are disproportionately impacted and affected by HIV. And if you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time, you know that I tend to focus on groups that have been minoritized. So this is about black, African-American and Hispanic Latino communities that have been disproportionately affected by the virus. I also want to just throw out there just for the sake of busting any myths that may be out there. But HIV can affect anyone, regardless of their sexual orientation, their race, ethnicity, gender, age or where they live. But there are certain groups that are more affected than others. And this is because some population groups just have higher rates of HIV in their communities, thus raising the risk of new infections with each sexual or injection drug use encounter. Like it, it's, it's a range of social, economic, and demographic factors that can affect people's risk for HIV. So there, there's that that I just want to put out there. So. Let's make sure as we're listening to today's episode, you hear the connotation around stigma. That's going to be something that's a through line. And it's been a through line in multiple episodes, but also discrimination. When we talk about education in one's geographic region. And as we frame today's episode is really through, of course, a, a racial justice lens. And we talk about how effective prevention and treatment are not adequately reaching the people who could benefit most. And it's unfortunate because we talk about groups being disproportionately impacted. And then these are the same groups that can't get to quality care and treatment. So those are things that I, I just want to put out there before we start today's episode to really just help level set. Now, as I introduce you all to today's guest, um, Dr. Darnell Motley, we met via Twitter, of course, and we had some some mutual um, friends in our network, uh, someone that I used to work with ended up leaving us to go work with him down in Chicago. No love lost. But we were able to, to connect over a variety of topics, one of which being wrestling. Um, if you know me, I, I like, you know, that attitude era. Also late, late 90s, maybe a little bit early 90s. Um, but we were able to just start, start having conversation and I started doing research on his background and the things that he was interested in. And I thought, you know, this would make for a really good episode because we don't often talk about just the, the triple impacts when it comes to 
being uh, exposed to racism, being exposed to homophobia, and then being exposed to stigma. So there's like these ongoing barriers around HIV testing, treatment, disclosure, like all of those things pop up. And so without giving away too much in today's episode, let me introduce you all to Dr. Darnell Motley. Darnell, you mind letting the people know a little bit about you? Not a problem. Uh, so again, my name is Dr. Darnell Motley. I am a clinical community psychologist and an assistant professor at University of Chicago, uh, where I do work focused around reducing HIV and other sexual health issues in Black queer communities. And so tell us a little bit about what brought you to that work specifically. Yeah, so I've always been someone really interested in understanding sex and sexuality. I often thought the conversation though was never really nuanced or sophisticated. People talked about sex with a lot of shame, which meant a lot of humor, but not humor to make it easier to talk about, humor to, to sort of put a little bit of distance between themselves and sex. And so when I realized I could study it academically, I was very excited. And so initially I was very interested in um, like black manhood and sex in particular, uh, but when I started graduate school and really got my feet wet with the work, I saw there was a lot of work to be done around, in particular, uh, Black gay and bisexual men um, and the ways that HIV was impacting that community. So that was my entryway. Um, and I'm also trained as a psychologist. So uh, my work is sort of a combination of individual level work, but also considering systems level changes that could happen that could also facilitate um, improving outcomes for folks. So. It's been a nice way to sort of marry my interest um, in Black folks, period, with my interest in sex and sexuality. You can come on over to that macro side. We, we want you. Come, <laughs> come talk about some stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So before we get into the bulk of our discussion today, I was, I was going back through my Twitter recently, and it was my wife's birthday last week. And I remember I had posted about brunch, right? And then I was at Maple and Ash. And so yeah. I want to ask you a question, just a, you know, a, a light question. What is your perfect brunch? Tell me the menu. So you're already speaking my language. My, my, my ideal brunch is pre-COVID Maple and Ash. So okay. full buffet, you know, high-end energy, uh seafood um platter on, on the table uh truffle pasta mimosas are are flowing with with energy <laughs> and uh <laughs> deliciousness uh ideally there's 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 some um well-cooked cut of steak happening a runny egg um and if possible some really good french toast Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. We were um we were at Maple Ash for what I felt like was like five hours. <laughs> like I, I lost track of time. <laughs> so let's let's dig in, right? Because I, I could probably talk about brunch all day. I've got some uh prosecco on, on ice upstairs. And you know, I'm, I can drink a mimosa at any time. So let's talk the the, the quote unquote problem. And so HIV is often described as both a racial justice issue as well as a public health issue. Could you describe what that means to you? Yeah, 
Um, unfortunately, like many health issues, um, Black folks tend to have worse outcomes in this area. And, you know, we'll see higher numbers of new infections. Um, we'll also see, um, in terms of percentage, and we'll see that there isn't the same kind of reduction um, in infection, even when there are new ways to, um, to prevent the disease. And one could look at that and make assumptions about Black people and say that Black folks aren't trying, they aren't um, listening to uh, the precautions that are being communicated. However, it's much more complicated than that. Um, so as I mentioned, a lot of my work is with Black gay men in particular. And when I came into the field, actually before I came into the field, when I was finishing undergrad, so I was at Princeton, finishing up, ready to come into the world, um, young professional, and there was some data released that made an argument that um, essentially that one in two Black, gay, and bisexual men um, were living with HIV in, in, in sort of three large cities. And I saw that data and I was very confused because at that point, I knew one person living with HIV. So I couldn't understand how it was possible that the numbers were what they were describing. And to be frank, the numbers weren't, weren't what they were describing. They were a bit um, skewed in that, in, that, in that research, but the idea that could be true was worrisome. And so digging into the data, we did see though that black gay men in particular were still being impacted most by the disease. Um, and we couldn't understand why for years. And slowly with, with more and more advanced uh, research, we were able to understand that it wasn't a matter of condom use, because at that point that was our major um, prevention strategy was condom use. Uh, but it wasn't just, it wasn't differences in condom use, because we would see that actually black gay and bisexual men were using condoms uh, similarly or more than their white peers. What it was more so was their, their networks. So many black gay and bisexual men are in pretty close sexual networks. They tend to be other black, other black gay and bi men um, in their communities. And so for a white gay man, his number of possible partners is sort of the range of possible partners is larger in sort of general numbers um, than for these black men. And so because many of these black men were in their own communities uh, with fewer possible partners, the disease can be transmitted more easily um, between those men. Also given you know, issues around insurance access, um, issues with mistrust of systems, there was sort of less engagement in care among black men. And so if we have less black men in care um, and sort of they are their, their, their own primary partners, we're having you know, less reduction in the viral load in the community and more communication between these men. And so if we look at it only as like, oh, black folks are doing something wrong, we're missing the understanding that it's actually about context. It's about um, access to services, access to care, um, but also the ways that there can also be sexual racism that can, may isolate this community um, and this sort of therefore propagate the, the, the disease and the, and the epidemic in that way. So you're, you're definitely hitting on all the points that matter to me, right? And in, in describing that, of course, this is like the only heel that I'm willing to die on that race is not a risk factor, right? Like people need to go ahead and debunk that theory now. But there's, there's still ongoing barriers and obstacles to care. Like people think for whatever reason we're in the 21st century, like everything is accessible because we have, you know, the world at our fingertips. And that's just simply not the case. 
I also want to get to, to talking about, you know, mistrust of the healthcare system, but we'll get to that in a bit. I want to go back some and talk about like the historical context of the disease and how it showed up and shows up in black communities. Yeah, I, in my experience, the story always seemed like it was about, quote, gay people, end quote, which for many black people means white people. So when I, when I was younger learning about the HIV epidemic, I assumed it was happening to gay white men that I did not know and would likely not know. There wasn't much conversation around the ways that were showing up in black communities, um, ravaging black communities, um, taking away many of the, the, the folks who would have been my elders. Um, and so there wasn't really a conversation happening around the ways we were losing folks, but we were. And there wasn't a priority placed on us in the way that it could have been. Um, when I think about even the, the funding that's available for HIV treatment, it's, it's labeled Ryan White. Ryan White um, was a young man who did die due to HIV, but in particular, Ryan White was someone who, um, who got the disease via blood transfusion. He was a young white man, ideally heterosexual, we, we presume, a boy um, who got the disease in a way that folks felt was sympathetic. There was not the same kind of sympathy for the queer folks. And, and, and so there was no conversation, um, which that I knew about around the black queer folks. And so even in the way we sort of have framed the funding, there's sort of this erasure of, of black queer folks who, um, who were fighting to live uh, during the height of the epidemic and who we, who we lost you know, in, in large numbers. In, in many ways, my first interaction with the possibility of, of HIV in black communities was when Malcolm, um, excuse me, when Magic Johnson came out with his diagnosis. And even then, there was sort of a brief discussion around like, what did this mean? Was Magic secretly gay? That was sort of the, the conversation in many spaces. And then at some point, because he didn't get sick and die, it went away. There was a notion that Magic uh, received a cure and that's why he was able to live. Um, as someone on, other, on the other side of the science now, that what likely is, is truer is, you know, there's different progression for different folks. Um, there's, also, there's also the access to um, newer medications as possible. Who knows, um, but he wasn't cured that much, I did know. Um, but after that, there wasn't much talk about HIV in Black communities in my experience until my senior year. Um, so this is 2005 or six, uh, a buddy of mine comes to campus and he says, we got to watch Oprah today. It's, it's an episode about the DL. I said, what? He's like, Oprah's covering the down low. We got to watch. And I said, okay, let me get my head right for this conversation. Let me, let me let's, let's watch this. And so we, we go to my room, we turn on Oprah and she has on J.L. King, who just written a book about, you know, black men living, quote, on the down low, meaning um, living double lives. So having a wife or a girlfriend, but secretly having male partners. So this covert bisexuality um, 
and the, and the the talk was really framed around how these men place women at risk, uh, black women at risk for HIV acquisition. And so, the sort of my second conversation uh, or sort of notice of conversation around HIV in black spaces was one that was sort of tied up with this idea of a black gay boogeyman who was preying on black women. And so then we had that to deal with. And there was rampant conversation about, is your man on the down low? Is your man putting you at risk? And at the time, I, I didn't know the science enough to sort of be able to have much of a conversation about it. But now as we've seen, so similar to sort of other misconceptions, um, the data soon after, um, soon after that, that sort of aired, was showing that you know black gay and bisexual men, uh, black bisexual men who weren't out to their partners were using condoms at high rates. And in fact, many of them used condoms with their male partners um, in, in ways to sort of distance themselves from the experience of, of it being uh, sort of intimate. But the narrative was never that. The narrative was that these men um, would not use the condoms to not think about what they were doing and they were putting folks at risk. And so we have this, uh, this sort of really damaging conversation at work that doesn't allow us as a community to come together. In fact, it forces us to be in separate, uh, separate teams, separate silos um, and places sort of folks who are being impacted by HIV as enemies, um, sort of wary of one another rather than folks who are uh, battling a systemic issue um, as, as comrades. I was today years old when I, thought of the letters DL as double lives. Like I've never thought about that until you just said it. And I know it, it typically stands for, for down low, but mm -hmm. I, I never would have even pieced that together. And I, re I recall that Oprah episode. I don't think I saw it when it came on. I know my mom was really big into Oprah, but I recall like the narrative around it, as you said, like the, we're treating like black men as these, uh, you know, nymphomaniac, just have sex with whomever, however, and when you think about that, I mean, a lot of those remnants still last today in the ways that we consider bisexuality. Like, you know, it, you, you can only have one or the other type narratives that people share. And it, it's, it's unfortunate. Certainly, I, I think about folks that I know even, even today, like I'm a bisexual man. And I often say gay because it's easier for folks to understand because I'm not currently practicing with women. But when I, when I talk to folks, there's a way they talk about picking a side. And when you ask them why, they say, because you don't expose that woman to that. To what? Like, what is, what is that that we're not naming? And often that sort of that unnamed thing is the presumed risk for HIV acquisition. So rather than having a conversation about how we can all be engaged in, in you know, partner testing, right? So rather than asking you know, the frustrating question, are you clean, we could say, have you been tested recently? What were the results? Can we go together, right? Like, can we go together to be tested and share our results with one another? That's a very different conversation than sort of creating a boogeyman that we are, you know, checking for through conversation at best, rather than going to a clinic and getting real information from professionals who can let us know. There's folks I know who've never been tested before. They don't plan to be because their assumption is that the virus is somewhere else with other folks mm. um, and not realizing it could be very proximal. So if we're, if we're thinking about sort of the systems level issues, incarceration impacts black folks 
disproportionate rates as well. And jails are often places that they don't allow condoms to be uh, distributed because to allow condoms to be distributed would mean to, to agree to the fact that men are having sex in there, but they are. And by ignoring that, we're not actually stopping anything. And the number of men who come home uh, from incarceration living with HIV um, is not inconsequential. And so it's another route of HIV coming into our communities, um, but not being addressed in a meaningful way. Also, because we don't see those men as sort of as valuable in the same time. We devalue those men or, or demonize them very quickly because of their history with incarceration. But again, these system level issues are creating risk in our communities that has to be addressed in a meaningful way. Let's dig down another layer. I know you mentioned that you currently work more often with men, but could you talk about how this experience is different for women? Yeah, so the epidemic in terms of the impact on women at all is still hitting Black women hardest, right? Um, and there, there has not been, for a few reasons, um, a really good conversation about prevention about um, about knowing your status. Uh, I think about right now, there's a medication, uh, we call it PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which essentially is, it means taking a medication um, to stop uh, you know, getting, getting, getting the virus, in this case, HIV. So Truvada is an option for PrEP that's been available for now about seven years. Um, it was initially marketed heavily toward gay and bisexual men, also trans women. Um, more recently, really a hard push for black gay and bi men to take it. Um, and when I tell my female friends, my cis female friends about PrEP, uh, many of them have raised the question, why has no one told me about this before? Why is no one mentioning PrEP for cis women? And it's a damn good question. Why aren't providers knowledgeable about PrEP, talking to their female patients about PrEP? Um, and in some ways, what I've heard in response is because the risk isn't high enough, but as compared to what, right? If, if, if we're using the folks who are being devastated by the, by the epidemic as our comparison, it's not fair. Like, like for cis-hetero cis folks, Black women are the ones who are being devastated. Um, both, both sort of, you know, locally and internationally. So the need is there, but there has not been a real push um, to provide information to those women. And even with the most recent um, version of PrEP, which is called Discovy, the trials didn't have enough women in it to sort of to be able to make an argument that it actually is valuable for them. So currently, it is not um, indicated sort of by, by, by the, the, the data for women, for anyone with a vagina, right? So for trans men, for cis women, um, it's not technically um, for them at present because we don't know that we don't have enough data on sort of the ways that the, the, the medication sort of penetrates vaginal walls. But, but what a shame that this great prophylactic um, has not been prioritized for women because of the ways we've sort of prioritized um, prioritized uh, trans women and, and, and cis um, gay men in trying to sort of address the issue. 
I think we're going to have to do different work. We're going to have to sort of shift our, it's not a zero sum. I think we've, we've been acting that way to some degree. And so to be able to make space for this additional work with, with Black cis women, um, to, for, to give them information, to understand what their needs are, because they're different than, than gay men. They may want to be marketed to differently. They may want to be talked to differently about this. There currently are some, some studies that are looking at possibly trying to pair uh, PrEP with, um, with birth control. And so someone could be able to get sort of a full prophylaxis. So prophylaxis for both um, pregnancy and HIV sort of in one, um, in one drug, whether that's some sort of injectable or uh, implantable or daily medication. But that steps in the right direction. Uh, but we're still, we're still early in that work, um, particularly when compared to what we've been doing with um, gay and bisexual men and trans women. So like the, the need is there, we know the need is there, but the work hasn't been happening in the way that it could be to ensure those women are also protected well uh, from the virus. And I feel like you can't have a conversation about HIV AIDS without talking about stigma, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how has stigma played a role? Maybe we can, we can narrow down from like community stigma and also mm -hmm. provider stigma. Yeah. I, I think about the folks who don't want to get tested because they don't want to know. Because the notion of what HIV is, is still very 1980s. There's still an idea that you get this virus and you'll die soon. It's not true anymore. Um, we've come a long way in terms of the science. So current HIV medications are really good, uh, really good, such that if someone's on their medication regularly, the, the life expectancy isn't much different than someone who's not living with HIV. So that, that's a first piece. Um, even in terms of like sex, there was a notion that you could never have condomless sex again after acquiring HIV. Um, but the science now shows if you are on your medication and your viral load is sufficiently low, which is what it, what's called undetectable, um, so sort of below a, a particular threshold, you will not transmit. So folks are able to have, you know, sex they want to have, but sadly, I know that, my colleagues know that, folks living with HIV might know that, the general public does not know that. And usually when I share that with people, they are horrified at the idea that somebody with HIV could be having condomless sex. Now I'll tell them, we've, we've done the science, we've studied this for years upon years. Right, you know, trials with, with you know, a thousand couples more, and we'll see, you know, no transmissions, and they're like, mm, I don't trust it. There's some, there's some, this deep disbelief, this deep stigma, this deep belief that this virus is how we understood it a long time ago, and that's crippling. Um, so that's a, a piece of it. You know, what, what are your friends going to say if you if you have this virus? What are partners going to say? How might they respond to you? Um, what rejection might follow? So I think that, that makes it hard for folks. Um, and, and to be frank, you know, not all clinicians are that much more savvy about it than the public. And so I've talked to clinicians who didn't want folks to know about, um, we call it U equals U, so um, 
undetectable equals untransmissible. And folks do not want that to be shared with clients because they don't believe they can be responsible. They worried that clients might take that as a, as a license um, to sort of be reckless with their sexuality, when in fact, it's a way to allow people to have more agency, to have more control, to have less fear about their own bodies, about their own sexuality, uh, less stigma about what it means to be them. And so there's, there's definitely a prevailing, a, a sort of a, a continuing issue of stigma um, but as we're educating folks more, as we're having more conversations, um, to be honest, as, as the media even changes around HIV, I think it's a bit different. Um, when I was a young gay man, I didn't want to watch any gay movies because everything was about acquiring HIV, losing a partner to HIV. Like that was, that was the story. And I just could not watch that over and over again. And luckily now, while there are still pieces that engage the question of HIV or the experience of living with HIV, there's a more there's a more variety. And so we talk about prep and, and you know in 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 television now, um, folks may be living with HIV and have a partner who's HIV negative, and have happy enjoyable sex for years, um, which is a very different conversation. I've, I've been thankful for it because I think we're moving in the right direction to reduce stigma. Uh, we got to keep, keep having these conversations, you know, and not just with folks who are in our mind are high risk. You know, talking to mama, talking to daddy, talking to cousin, you know, talking to grandma, so she can have a different notion. Um, and I think folks coming out as positive has also been helpful because they're sort of shifting the, the visual image of HIV. Um, so we're not stuck with those 1980s images of folks, you know, wasting away in the wards. We see those folks who are living healthily, living long. Um, you know, I've, I've had patients who have been positive since the early 80s. And they're still here. They lived through when there was nothing really to offer them. They lived through medication that was fairly toxic to them. Then they lived through having good medications and making it work, even with limited access. They, they've, they've lived through, they live, they, they've had HIV long without being alive, which is kind of wacky to me. Um, but we don't hear about those folks. I think if we did more often, we could have a, a more nuanced understanding of the virus and begin to shift our, 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 our stigmas, drop some of those stigmas and be able to have, you know, more productive conversation around this, this issue. I mentioned earlier how there's this, this notion, and I, I'm not even sure how it came to be or how it's carried on, that, you know, people can just literally get to care, right? Like, mm -hmm. you have the ability to stop a bus, to drive, you know, you've got telehealth options now because of the pandemic. Could you describe like what kind of obstacles are present that continue to impede access to quality care, especially for folks who are looking for treatment? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, so there's fear. So the general fear of seeking care that I think stops a lot of folks. Um, there's not knowing where you can receive care that, um, that is sensitive to your issue. Right, like not everyone's treating HIV is respectful. And so you know, knowing you can be safe in that space, um, knowing you cannot be judged. So because of the history of the, of the virus, there's assumptions about you know, who is positive, what their behaviors are. Um, so if a, if a man comes in and he says, you know, I think I'm living, I'm living with HIV, and they begin to ask him about you know, same-sex behaviors, and he said, I don't do that. 
and they continue to ask about it, right? That's a stigmatizing situation. That could sort of make that man leave care. The truth of the matter, there are many men who are who are heterosexual, who engage with cishet women and have the virus for whatever reasons. And to be able to receive care that doesn't assume you are a liar um, is also a piece of this. So those are the general, the beginning barriers, but there's, there's concerns about cost. Um, there's assumptions that the medications will be expensive. Um, there are those really sort of, you know, concrete difficulties like being able to go to the clinic, right? To be able to pay to get to the clinic. Um, there, and I think those things can be remedied and then many programs are being remedied, but folks don't know that. And so the issue of cost is what I often hear about, but there are really good programs that will cover the cost of medications. Um, folks I've worked with as a therapist, folks I've worked with um, in my studies have been able to access um, full coverage for the medication more often than not, um, either through their insurance or through one of the assistance programs. And so it doesn't become the, uh, the burden that we had talked about. I remember there used to be conversations about, oh, the medications cost you know, X number of thousand dollars a month. How can someone afford that? Ideally, you don't. Ideally, um, it's being covered through a program. So we're not sort of having the double burden of this health issue um, and cost. Um, and, I, and perhaps it's, it's really upon the folks on the public health side, the providers as well, to be discussing this more openly. Because um, again, much of what I know, I know because of my work. Not because of working in HIV clinics, not because of being a researcher who's studying these issues. I'm not sure I would know about um, assistance programs or other kinds of sort of ways around these barriers if not for that work. And so I can tell my friends about it now and my family, but I think there's a need for a much broader distribution of information so folks can know if you're living with HIV, please come in. You know, there are these programs to support you. Um, you know, don't worry about cost. Uh, don't worry about confidentiality because that's often a major fear. Um, I recall having a patient, God bless him, who would travel from a different city to see me because his concern was in his small town, someone would know somebody. So if I go to this, to the clinic, I go to my doctor, you know, the front desk lady might know my grandma, you know, the doctor might know my grandma, someone's gonna know somebody. And, and his belief was someone's gonna tell that. And I can't afford to have that information shared um, with my family. I might lose them if they knew that. And that that's a tremendous barrier. Like, thankfully, he was able to make that trek. But truthfully, he wasn't always able to make it. He missed many appointments because trying to come city to city was not easy for him. And so I think if we can, if we can begin to let folks know that the systems can be safe to navigate, and that there are intentional decisions being made to ensure quality access, to ensure there are competent providers, to ensure um, that cost won't make this un untenable, that may also just allow folks to be able to really, um, to seek treatment 
and to live well, because there are folks who are doing it, who, you know, get their diagnosis and get in the care quickly and get back to living life in a way that feels very normal to them. But letting folks who are of lower income, folks who are black, um, folks who don't feel like they've been prioritized in this conversation, know about those things may allow them to, to be better engaged in care. I want to think about, you know, the ways that viruses have transformed public health. And there's, there's two that come to mind here in the more recent um, time, thinking about HIV, AIDS pandemic, and also COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so from your vantage point, what have been some of the discussion comparing the two? And I'm really curious as to, you know, where have we gotten it right? And where do we still have work to do? Because I, I've observed, like, from, from the public health seat, just the ways that we continue to talk about our social infrastructure and the fact that it's those social determinants that really impact vulnerability. And I hear part of that in this conversation as well. You know, who has access to what will impact, you know, health outcomes later. But I'm curious, what, what are you hearing from your side? Yeah, and, and I will, I'll preface this by saying, I'm not sure that I'm always getting it right with regard to this. I think that I often fuss about the old guard in public health and their perspectives, but I've been doing this work now for, I guess about 11 years. So I'm not exactly new anymore. So there's some ways that I'm also old um, in my approach. So with that said, when, when the pandemic began, and there were the pretty strict um, shelter in place orders, I was on board, very much on board. Uh, It seemed to me a very doable solution to reduce risk of transmission. And I was saying that as someone who could very comfortably be in his apartment for months, who could order his groceries, who could order food, who could do all the things to make my life comfortable while being secluded. And folks who would not seclude made me very frustrated. I I could not understand why they needed to sort of break all of these rules um, to be social, like people who are still on sex apps. You have to do it that bad with strangers. You you just can't stay in your house. And I found myself really annoyed. I was like, we've we've learned about, you know, how how to stem a virus why are we doing this wrong? And in one way I was right, in one way I was very wrong because we also learned with the, with the HIV epidemic that restriction alone is not sufficient for prevention, right? Like people have a, a multitude of needs and social interaction is one of them that has value. And the sort of, in some ways, isolation only was not that different than condoms only as an approach to prevention. And so I think, you know, the, the fervor to prevent the virus, I think is something we learned well from HIV. I think that the rigidity of our initial approaches and the judgment we put upon folks um, demonstrated a, a lack of reflection, what we learned about from, from the HIV pandemic. Um, and so what I, what I will say though, is as we move toward vaccination um, for COVID, 
which in many ways was predicated on the science that was done toward an HIV cure. Um, I, I've been sort of heartened at the number of folks in communities at risk for, H, for HIV uh, or living with HIV who have been willing to get vaccinated, who've been willing to um, get tested for COVID in order to live like they want to live. I think still the, um, the, the penchant for harsh judgment of folks who are more reluctant to follow the rules that sort of the, the suggestions of, of the sort of the health uh, providers and public health officials um, still reflects a lack of, of reflection because we know that there are so many reasons folks don't trust systems. So um, I know the vaccine was developed quickly because it was, excuse me, built on this infrastructure. Not everybody knows that. And so on, on my side of, of the work, I, I'm watching folks, black, black scientists, black public health officials push to make sure that when the vaccine's available, black folks get it first. We, we are tearing rooms up. We are, we're lighting folks' asses on fire about this. And then when it came time to be prioritized, community members were asking, why are y'all doing this? I can't trust being first in line. I don't wanna be an experiment. And so there was, we weren't thinking through need for communication we're doing for transparency. So folks could see there were folks who were invested in them ensuring they were being prioritized, not just sort of pharma companies using them as a dish data to sort of see how well the, 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 the methods are working. Um, and, I, and I think sort of, if we, if we had realized that sooner that we needed to be engaged in really clear communication and like, it's, it's not that different than with HIV. So again, like I mentioned, I know about U equals U because of my work, most folks don't there should be more frank conversations about what we know and what we don't know. So folks, excuse me, so folks can feel included um, and then be able to make decisions that are more agentic rather than making decisions um, that are really mired in their fear um, and their distrust. So I, I think, you know, we've gotten a few things right in terms of the, the eagerness we have, the literal science we've built upon, but I think if we've, if we've been more thoughtful about how we approach communicating what can be done well, how we approach understanding folks who resist initial efforts um, at prevention, we could have been sort of more, um, more empathetic in our work and possibly sort of uh, created less um, tension and frustration with public health officials um, and the systems so in place. When we first started getting cases here in Michigan, um, you know, my family will wait for me to give like updates because mm -hmm. they know I work for the government. I work for the state health department and it became, you know, like my role is now like the, the public health expert within my family. Right. And then it, it expanded and it, it took place from the point of, you know, testing to the point of vaccinations, you know, even now, I've got family asking me, well, you know, should I get vaccinated? And I'm like, you know, do you 
what are your reservations? And and people tend to have, you know, reservations that are valid. I mean, hesitancy doesn't come from anywhere, or from nowhere rather. And being able to assist in that way, at first I was I was frustrated by it. Like I'm I'm learning this at the same time you are. Like watch the news. I'll tell you <laughs> if it's right or if it's wrong. And then I took it as like you know this this is my responsibility as a role in like public health leadership, like being able to articulate what the risks are you know, why we're seeing the numbers that we're seeing. And even now in the, the Delta surge that we're experiencing, it's like, you know, our children are at great risk because mm-hmm. they don't have any form of protection. And what you can do as, you know, a parent, as grandma, as auntie, is to protect yourself, to protect your children. And so I'm not going to get on my vaccination high horse today, but I, I just see the, the comparisons there of like, we have roles as, you know, as we become the old guard, right? We become the gatekeepers. How do we make sure that we're sharing information that can, you know, benefit folks and make sure they have enough information to be informed with whatever decisions they make? Yeah, yeah. The the thing that I've been sitting with a lot in the last, let's say, three months, is is navigating my frustration when I communicate science and it's rejected. So um, I had the same role in my family in that, um, and everything was very partisan, very political. So let you know what it says. Like I will dig into it because I, I, I feel comfortable doing so. And so I would go back and let folks know what was what. And in my family, that was well received. Folks, you know, heard what I, what I shared. They were, oh, it's safe, cool. It, it means this means that, okay, great. They, they did that. But I'm also, you know, usually in conversation with, with friends and family on social media, many of whom, have a lot of reservations, a lot of reservations. Um, some, some based in like fact and some based in like mythology. And so I'll, I'll hear folks, they'll name Tuskegee as the reason they won't get vaccinated. And I'll say, what about Tuskegee? And they'll say, they gave those men syphilis. They didn't. They denied those men treatment. And so in many ways, we are on the opposite of Tuskegee in that it is, it's available, right? Those men did not know they could have received treatment for syphilis. Um, they, were, they were given nothing really. And so we're, we're at a moment where we can. And so I'll educate folks around those kinds of things. I'll talk about, um, the, the sort of understanding the reasons why folks are, are hesitant, um, you know, we do have a system that has been predicated on using black bodies for experimentation. That is true. However, the, the ways that folks could get away with poor science 40 years ago is not the same now because there are so many systems in place that are intended to slow our process and to ensure ethical research. Um, I deal with review boards inside of my institution all the time. I'm often annoyed with them. But their job (laughs) is to make sure that my science is ethically done, right? So sometimes I can't even ask someone a question without getting pushed back from my review board. I would not be able to give them a, a, a medication that will make them sick without giving them all the warnings, like without sort of doing lots of things 
and have and having like scientific value to doing the thing. But folks don't like, they don't know that because they don't they don't have to know that. And so having conversations with that in mind, like realizing not everyone knows about IRBs, not everyone knows about the, you know the ways we changed our approach to science. You know, after World War II, after Tuskegee, after a number of these revelations of highly unethical science that was occurring. And so it's really been a process of like building and maintaining patience. Um, I've, I've read about a few physicians who have kind of just said like, they give up on the unvaccinated. And I know where that, where that idea comes from, like the, the sort of the exasperation of trying hard to get folks to be healthy, to be, to be safe. And feel like your your sort of your words are being are sort of falling on on deaf ears, but I think the necessity of continuing our um, our desire to support communities at risk, even when they do not listen to first, even when they question the science, even when they question our, our loyalty, because I've also been told them that I am I've been co opted by by them whoever them is, you know, the man, pharma, the government, and that's why I support vaccination. And it's like, or, or I want you to be here next year. Like, and it's hard to have your, your personal ethics question in that way. It's hard to have your personal like uh, values question in that way when your goal is that folks can be healthy. Um, but I think it's worth continuing the efforts despite that frustration um, because someone may listen. Someone may remember a chunk of what you said and, and re revisit their idea about vaccination. Even if it's like after something happens and it's sort of a, a tragedy that sort of spurs them, at least we've shared information with them so they can make decisions that are um, in their best interest. So I want to get really specific about about your role, right? Like in the, the work that you've done, because I, you know, I googled you because you you popping like that, and <laughs> I want to know how have you been able to bridge qualitative research and intersectionality to highlight this work? Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe that the communities that I'm most interested in have often been studied lazily. So we have not thought about their complexity. We've tried to make them simple so we could easily put them into a survey. Um, but I don't believe we, we can do good work without the folks' voices to be, to be heard. So right now, a lot of my work centers like structural ways to, um, to stem this issue around HIV. So for example, one of my projects focuses on employment um, as a route toward reducing reliance on sex work um, and improving sort of access to, to the finances necessary to engage in prevention. And um, in doing that, I met with, you know, folks for focus groups, for interviews, and really dug into what's been your experience with, with, with seeking employment? What's been your experience um, with, you know, navigating your identities and employment? So if you're Black and queer, what are the barriers to your employment? What are the barriers to engaging in healthcare? How do you see your healthcare and your, your employment as being connected? And even sort of more broadly, for this intervention, what do you want to see? Like, what are the ingredients you need to see in this intervention for it to be useful? Because it's been my experience often, 
that science happens, you know, in, in, a, in a lab or in a, in a boardroom, conference room with a bunch of scientists who have not experienced the thing, uh, who don't belong to, belong to communities that are being impacted by the thing, but they've got a lot of good science knowledge. And as someone in the communities being impacted, I, I can't do that. Um, I've got to bring folks' voices into the room because one, the quality of this work is, is impactful to me too, right? It's not just imaginary Black queer folks. It's folks I really know. It's me. Um, and also, if I do poor quality work, my phone rings. Someone's going to call uh, Darnell, not Dr. Motley, Darnell. What's going on with this <laughs> Right, well, it don't sound like it's like it's going right, right? I might get a personal phone call. And so I'm really invested in making sure that we are including folks' voices. We're having them provide oversight. Um, like even right now, I've been working with a community advisory board for my center at the University of Chicago so that folks feel comfortable giving curt feedback. It won't always be, I like this. Sometimes it'll be, this is a bad study. Don't do this. You're mm -hmm. doing this wrong. The questions are, are offensive. The questions are disrespectful. And so I'm, I'm really trying to empower them to be able to read us. Like, I have no problem with getting read. If I need to be read, read me, right? Like, give me, read me the ride if you need to. And they're getting comfortable. They're, they're saying the things so that we can make sure we're doing, you know, respectful work, addressing the questions that matter to community, um, not just chasing behind funding, because that's one thing that folks do. They chase question that funding um, is, is asking versus really asking folks what do, what needs to be done to support you? How do we do that well? And like, and tell us when we're not doing it right. And so for me, qualitative work, so asking questions, you know, interviews, focus groups, um, and thinking about that complexity, because even the experience of, of, of Black gay and bisexual men is not the same as, as Black trans women. And like, while they may have some, some similar origins, some similar experiences earlier in life, they are different folks. You know, even thinking about black trans women, black cis women, they are different folks. We've gotta be able to get comfortable noticing that difference, right? Differences across, you know, economic status. My experience is different now than it would have been 10 years ago. And what I would have needed then isn't what I need now. But you have to be able to be comfortable realizing that folks are more than black, more than, you know, black man, black woman, to be able to get into all those intersections and really dig into the complexity of what may be needed to support them best. I did a, a presentation last week around community engagement and I've said, you know, all the things that, that you're, you're saying. And the thing that stands out to me, you know, even in facilitating conversations I've done, you know, trainings around social justice and implicit bias, like all of the, all the things. And I tell folks, you know, lean into your discomfort. And it's funny that I've never said it like to myself as a practitioner, and we don't say it to ourselves as researchers. Okay. Like, we have to lean into our own discomfort, right? Like, in the in the sense that we have an advisory board or we have communities who made themselves available for whatever reason, because you know they're just as passionate about the thing as you are, except they're not attached to a university, like. They're the people living it. I think there's there's this missing opportunity for us to like, hey, if you're gonna read me, it's because you care, right? Like it, it's like when like my when my grandmother swears, like she, that's not her thing. But if she does, it's like you you better be listening because <laughs> this matters, right? And 
being able to say, you know, I'm uncomfortable, well, that's good because that means that you're listening. Like your body's responding to the things that you're hearing. What are you going to do about it? Certainly, certainly. One, one, of, one of my favorite quotes from a, someone I heard at, at a conference was, it was Tonya Poteet at a LGBTQ health conference a few years ago. And she said, if you have been doing this work and you have not been read, you're not doing this work. And <laughs> it, it was such an important point because when I think about work around HIV is work around communities that have been hurt before. Folks who have been mistreated, folks who've been undervalued. If you have not heard them say, ouch, you're not doing the work because there are ways that in our attempts to be supportive, we will create ouches. Like that's part of the work. And it doesn't mean you run away. It means you listen. It means you, you refigure. It means you have conversations around the ways that some things may hurt because I did it wrong or it may hurt because we're sort of doing the work of improving the thing. And again, it's, it's worthwhile to be comfortable receiving that feedback, even if it does not feel good to you as the person with power, right? Like it, it is okay to be corrected by someone who's living the experience you're trying to understand. That takes me back to the Zero Neural Hurston quote about being silent about your pain. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'll, for the folks listening, look it up and you'll, you'll see it. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we've got to make space for folks to, folks to voice their pain and we have to listen to it when we hear it. For sure. So in the, the space that you're in, and this is my, you know, thinking about the, the long-term vision around um, HIV treatment uh -huh. and prevention, could you describe what you think some of the future directions may be? Yeah. You know, there's conversation about the end of HIV um, being in the next, you know, 15, 20 years. And the idea of that's very exciting. Um, however, to do that, and to do that well means prioritizing the folks who are most impacted, who are most vulnerable. We've done well with the, the, edu the highly educated um, white gay men who have access. Now we have to dig into the issues that are keeping the pandemic going for other folks. And to talk about structural racism, to talk about sexual racism, to talk about providers who, um, who are not invested in these communities. We have to talk about um, changing infrastructures, um, tailoring our work to the folks we're trying, to, we're trying to treat. And a lot of that's gonna require humility on the behalf of, of the, the researchers and the practitioners, but it's also gonna mean making room for investigators and, and clinicians who are not old white men. Like the necessity of you know, queer and trans folks of color, black folks, brown folks in power doing this work can be understated. Like it's so many of the folks I know who are um, sort of black and brown queer researchers or, or practitioners were mentored by white folks who we love. It will be nice when the mentors are also folks in community. Now that will sort of demonstrate that we've gotten to a place where it's not just tokens, but it's actually community invested work on a more regular basis. I need it to be the case that more folks with their phone rang when they do bad work, not just me. 
I need other folks to have to be to be sort of called to the floor um, when things aren't going well because it, it's a different kind of accountability. It's a different kind of understanding, right? Like, do you do you actually go to balls and see the girls vote, you know, and talk to them afterward, or you only watch it on post? Those are very different things. Those are very different things. <laughs> and if you're not in community with the folks, it's it's different, right? When 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 young folks die due to the virus or due to community violence, I often know those folks, right? And it changes the my sort of my energy for the work. It, it makes me work harder. If those folks are just imaginary to you, it is not the same. So my hope is that as we move forward, we're going to make room for the folks who, who for this for them this is life and death work, um, and we'll be able to dig into these issues that will help us stem HIV, but also will help us improve our, our society more broadly. Because the truth of the matter is what HIV is doing is just shining the light on who we haven't valued. And so until we can do better by that, we'll still have this issue um, very much visible to us. Dr. Miley, you've, you've raised a lot of, of points that you know just lend itself in the ways that we function in various spaces, whether it's healthcare, I mean, whether it's me and the, the policy seat for, for researchers, I mean, all of these things matter. And I, I love the, the notion around intersectionality because it is more nuanced than just race. It is more nuanced than just gender and sexual orientation. Like all of these things matter. Mm -hmm. And the ways that we approach the, the quote unquote solution is based on our understanding of these different interactions of different environments and the ways that we show up. And so I, I I say all of this to say thank you for the work that you do um, in amplifying voice and centering this experience because otherwise there are people who will have no idea what it's like to navigate these spaces, making decisions for people that they don't even know, and mm -hmm. will just continue to further marginalize and harm. So I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thank you for what you do. Um, how do people keep up with you, um, the, the research that you do? I mean, they could Google you like I did, but how can they find you? <laughs> the easiest way to access me is through Twitter. So that's at D Motley PhD. So that's D-M-O-T-L-E-Y-P-H-D. Uh, I'm very accessible. I love conversations with folks about, about public health, about, about Blackness, about sexuality. Um, yes, that's probably the best place to get a hold of me uh, for any of those conversations. I think we were talking about wrestling on there once too. Yeah, like, you know, I want to have the, all the conversations. Like, <laughs> I, I'm a firm believer in like, you know, when I created my quote professional Twitter, my thought was it would only be me talking about sex and health. And I said, self, that's not realistic. <laughs> I care about too many things. I care about too many things. And so many things are interconnected. So like, you know, to be able to talk about, about wrestling, which is where I learned, there's things about race and wrestling that I hadn't thought about, you know, a lot of my, my early heroes don't like gay people, which hurts me. I'm like, wait, I have so many folks I love oh, yeah. are homophobic and racist. Oh, let's discuss all of those things that sort of warrant conversation. I'm down for all of those conversations for sure. Yeah, I've been really digging into like some some wrestling fandom lately. Um, there's like these just these YouTube channels where they have like these top ten lists, and I can just listen to them all day. Like 
you know, botched uh, shots at SummerSlam, like most dangerous moves. Like I'm literally just like oh, listening yeah. to those when I'm writing sports. Like I'm I'm into it. I can dig it. Well, thank you, Dr. Motley. I, I know we'll we'll definitely be in touch, and I appreciate you hopping on the show. Thanks for having me. When I went back and listened to this episode as I was preparing and I was editing, I caught chills during Dr. Motley's introduction. And part of that is just being able to hear a black gay community psychologist. Like where, where does that happen? Where do you find this collection of experiences and identities as a psychologist or as a social worker? I, I know they're out there, but it's just so rare to find this this culmination and so just of course want to shout out my bro for for hopping on the pod i think there's no other person that i wanted to have this conversation with um just his his perspective and the things that he's encountered in his research just just grateful to you a few quick announcements on the uh the other side of things so some of you may have seen I lost my grandmother um, earlier this month. It has been a trying time for myself and my family. Um, part of it for me is really knowing that I can't, I don't have access to her like I used to. When I think about the things that she instilled in me, the, the lessons like my, my grandmother taught me how to pray, you know, the same prayer that I say to my kids now as they get ready to go to bed um, is the one that we said together. And she used to walk me to Sunday school and she's the reason I have a good sense of direction, the reason why I'm kind. You might even argue the reason why I'm a social worker. And so losing her has been been tough. But we, we will make it through. Um, I think at some point I'll have to share kind of the behind the scene things that happen during uh, funeral planning. Because if you've seen any uh, movie, you know how it goes. And I love my family dearly, but we're going to need some space after this is done. On the not so personal side of things, we are steamrolling into the end of the equity matters podcast how do y'all feel i know how i feel let me know how you all feel um it's the end of an era it's been fun but we must evolve must transform and we'll, we'll do that so we'll see what happens next but i'm i've got mixed feelings about it i mean it's, it's been my baby for two plus years so we'll see what happens Additionally, Brothers in Social Work Collective, we are up and popping. We've got three commitments, um, major announcements coming soon. I think I've already mentioned we've been working closely with Wayne State, but we've got two more on the horizon. And if you need speakers, you need facilitators, you need trainers, you need someone to come talk to your staff, your faculty, your students about navigating uncertain spaces or just be up front navigating white spaces and social work give us a call that's what we're here for send me a dm we are more than open who are the brothers in social work collective you may ask we have uh my brother 
Gary Tay trailer down in Virginia. You have the hip hop social worker Christopher Scott over in Portland, Oregon. Never knew if it's Oregon or Oregon. Chris fight me later. And we are expanding. So we're also looking for more brothers who are interested in joining our network and who are interested in in uplifting this message and really talking about dismantling the barriers to black and brown engagement in social work programs because I think about my time in graduate school and my doctoral program, there weren't always safe spaces for me. And that can be a lonely adventure when you have no one else. Um, So if you're interested in learning more about Brothers and Social Work Collective, hit one of us up. That's what we're there for. For now, we'll leave things right there. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Give us a follow on the socials. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on YouTube. We don't have a Reddit. We don't have a Pinterest that we want to share. Even though I've thought about it because there's a lot of resources we come across that might be beneficial. But we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Um, Courses are live on Cummings Graduate Institute. Of course, check the links in our bio. We've got a lot of people asking questions about the uh, white supremacy and mental health training. Check it out. Go into it with an open mind. All those things that we say. No, really, I think it's it's a great training. They gave me free reign and I was able to really just pour into the experience. Until next time, folks, take care of yourselves. Stay safe. Um, don't stigmatize people. That's a new new addition. And of course, equity matters. <laughs>